Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Torah section called Yitro, or Jethro, and it covers uh, Exodus chapter 18, goes through a chunk of chapter 20, includes the Ten Commandments in the part of that, and we picked up passages in Isaiah chapter 6 and 7, and also we've got the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, it in total covers Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and so we looked at verses 1 through 20 as we began through that. Now, if we were to just take a look at some of the high points of Yitro, you'd say, what are some of the key takeaways of this particular Torah passage here? And one of the things that we should come away with is that the Ten Commandments are testimony a witness of the Holy One and the Heaven's plan for humanity on earth, and how that they would be now le'olam va'ed, or over the horizon and beyond. So it would be both now and forever and ever. And beyond that, we get a picture of our identity. Who am I? We also get a picture of our purpose. Why am I here? And we also get a picture of our goals in life. Where am I going and how do I get there? Like we have been talking about as we continue on with this journey through the book of Shemot or Exodus, that this is a journey that every believer in God takes. We all come out of our own house of bondage and we go into our own land of freedom. We all go into that land of rest. And that is something we commemorate every year during the time of Pesach or Passover, that that journey was not just for people thousands of years ago, but it's one that all of us take together. And it's one that all of us take. And one of us, all of us should be seeing this journey of where we were before and where we are going to, and that we are actually leaving where we were before and going to a destination, to that land of rest, to cross over into that land of rest and leaving behind that part of us that was before. So these are all really important lessons of where we're going. But the question of who am I that we get in this particular passage of Yitro, we see of what Israel is. And we see that, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about believers being a part of the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth, you think of like the British Empire, there was like the Great Britain itself. And then what was the commonwealth? Those were all of the states that were former colonies. When they gained their independence, they became a part of a greater whole called the commonwealth. That would be working together, supposedly on the on the same toward the same goal, you know, 
in a human commonwealth doesn't always work well it's in internal fights and such like that but the commonwealth of israel is many parts a part of a single whole that is working toward a a similar purpose and we see some of these purposes we just have seen uh, earlier on what the purposes of israel are in chapter 19 verses 3 through 8 we see that israel was to be a kingdom of priests and we see in the apostle peter in first peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 talks about israel and believers are to be a royal priesthood so that kingdom of priests royal priesthood a part priests of the king and one of the things that we look at when we get into the book of vaikra or leviticus we see what priests do we'll be getting into that a little bit later but the key part of what priests do is with the tabernacle the temple priests work for the people that are outside who want to get closer to the reason why that temple the tabernacle is there which is the presence of the creator of heaven and earth so they take people from where they are outside to close to the presence they take their gifts they take their blessings in and they also a key part of that whole process is to teach people who it is that they're serving now you see in israel's history that's israel is uh been a good witness and also a bad witness and a good witness and a bad witness and you as you go through ancient israel's history it looks like a roller coaster of you know being good witnesses bad witnesses good witnesses bad witnesses and back and forth but one of the key witnesses then that comes out of that is the messiah the anointed one is the one of the key witnesses of heaven so israel is a witness of the king and messiah is the key witness of the king and the messiah or the israel is called my son my firstborn there we saw it earlier in exodus chapter 4 and you see that also quoted again in the passage from hosea chapter 11 kind of touches back on that exodus chapter 4 so you see that israel is my son my firstborn so if israel's key witness is of the messiah thus you see why it is that the messiah is the quintessential firstborn and then you get into the gospel of john and you see that the messiah is what is the only begotten son hearkening back to isaac and with abraham up on the mountain and you see in the book of galatians which is <laughs> just coincidentally enough we are starting launching into with our tuesday bible study into the book of galatians and galatians chapter 3 israel's talked about that the sons and daughters of god through faith through belief through trust in messiah yeshua they are a part of what israel is and the apostle yochanan in his first letter first john chapter 2 verse 28 through chapter 3 verse 5 we see this picture that israel are children of god and it is a blessing to be called sons and daughters of god because if we think of where we were 
Did we deserve to be called sons and daughters of the creator of heaven and earth? No. That's one of the key things that all of us have to get into our heads and something that Israel had to be reminded of over and over again. It's not because of how wonderful you are, how holy you are, etc. Because why? Who is the one that made Israel holy? And what does holy mean? Holy means set apart. So who set Israel apart as being anything significant? That was the creator of heaven and earth. Set Israel apart for a specific purpose, to be kingdom of priests, to be the witness on earth, not to be a social club, not to be a distinctive thing in and of itself, but it is to be a witness on the earth. Uh, yes, Deborah, you have a comment or a uh, question over there. Yes. I had heard that when Israel and, you know, the people, not the, the nation, that when Israel, Israel's doing well, um, it, the nation does well. You know, there are, there's things that happen when Satan is, is up and you start to see chaos. World, well, now it's worldwide. So, you know, I was taught that when Israel does well and they're doing well with God, then that manifests spiritually around the world. So they might be able to tell us what kind of heart condition that we're in at this time. And it's, it's one of those things that even though in the times of correction for Israel that's come about because of exiles or, or whatnot, that people will still see that God is working through Israel. All right. And as we go on further, some of the other key things that we're going to get out of this passage as we go along is that new birth, called this being born again, is something that includes Sinai, which is the words, the testimony of God, plus the Spirit of God. And that is key into the new covenant, what is the prophecy of the new covenant. And we'll touch on that a little bit here, but that's something that we just went through in our preface to the book of Galatians. Because to understand Paul's letter to the church in uh, Galatia, was to understand that there, what this new covenant was. And the new covenant prophecy is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Both of those, those two witnesses of what the new covenant are, they both talk about a transformation that happens within. And that transformation is key. It is the words of God and the Spirit of God then make you a new person. Because one of the things that some people will focus on is the Sinai part. Well, the Sinai part, and Paul astutely and with the great inspiration of God says, what does the letter do? It does nothing but kill. It condemns. And we'll be getting to that in a bit. It instructs. It gives us the witness and the testimony of it. But by itself, it can do nothing. The Spirit of God is then what takes it further. And that Spirit and the Son of God working together makes a new person. You are that new person the new person that goes into the land. So you have a starting point. You have a new heart. 
the thoughts. You have new thoughts, new thought patterns that come in. Those are directed by Sinai. And then you get a new spirit, the desires that you have, which are powered by God's spirit. So you have new thoughts, a new heart. Then you have a new spirit, a new desires. So you can have all the thoughts that you wish, but if you have no desire drive moving you to do them, where are you? You're stagnant. Or you see like in, in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is going, you know, he sees himself up against the words, the words of God. He's faced with Sinai, the testimony of God. But without the desire, the drive to move that forward into life, where is he then? O oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? But then you see as chapter 8 begins, which talks about the indwelling of the Spirit, which is key to the new covenant of Romans chapter 8, you see that they're what? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua, in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in that. Yes, you've come face to face with Sinai, with the words of God. And you, in a sense, are just like those people we just read about there in Exodus chapter 19, chapter 20. Oh, don't speak to us. God, have Moshe speak to us. Have Moses speak to us. Moves from everything you say we will do to don't talk to us. We're scared. We're petrified. So the destination and the path that we have to this new birth, Spirit and Sinai together, the new covenant, is to know the Holy One. And no new life without the stain or guilt of sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. One time, I one time? Heard, I think it was that one time that they did, that Yahweh did speak to everybody. And, they wanted, and he wanted everybody to hear it. Yes. Was, wasn't that that moment? That was, that was the, the, the testimony that he had yeah. of he spoke to them. They all heard it. Oh, they heard it all and right. they remembered it. Yeah, they, they felt it, yes. Yes. And, and it's interesting, and a number of commentators over centuries have, have noted this, is that the, the strange way that that's, uh, it's mentioned in the, in the Hebrew there is that uh, it strictly says they saw the trumpets or they saw the voice, which... To us is strange. Why would? How can you see a voice? So trans, translators will 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 say, well, they heard the sound of the trumpets. Well, strictly speaking, it says they saw the sound of the trumpet. So that's it's a very weird sort of thing. But when you catch the play on words there, in Hebrew, fear is yara. To see is yara. Hmm. So when they talk about the fear of the Lord, one of the um, witnesses that you get, and you especially see it in the book of Proverbs, you know, what the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding, all of those things. 
strictly speaking, when you see that wordplay that's going on of yira, fear, yira, strictly speaking, not just sees, but he sees is the way that that is conjugated. Fear of the Lord is to know that he sees you. He sees you at all times. That is the fear of the Lord, is he sees. Do you know that? And because you see that in the prophets, and they will say, oh, he doesn't see what we're doing. He doesn't see what we're doing. And then the prophets have to remind him, oh, yes, he does. He indeed sees what's going on here. You can't hide it. You can't hide what's going on whatsoever. Uh, yes, Larry, go ahead, please. I heard it said, too, that when they heard the voice, it was so powerful that it, <laughs> they felt it was rattling their bones. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why they were so afraid. I guess they thought mm -hmm. they might die. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, even t today we get a little bit of an, of an experience like that. I was I always like to play in a place that has, like, gigantic subwoofers. Uh, one place I play in has a 3,000-watt subwoofer. And, you know, when, when the, both the kick drums and the bass are running through a subwoofer like that, oh, my goodness, when you, you feel it. And that is just a small little taste of that. Now, just imagine that on a grander scale of it, just rattling you just within. Yeah. Uh, yes, Anne, go ahead, please. Um, <clears throat> I, I only understood... Um, Psalm 29 yesterday. <laughs> I, Psalm 29 says, um, Ascribe unto the Lord his mighty, mighty, mighty in strength. Ascribe unto the Lord. Now, it's also the word, the voice of the Lord, the voice of ascribe unto the Lord, or the voice of the Lord, his mighty strength, that, that he breaks the rocks. And, you know, it's like, Okay, so if you've got rocks breaking at that mountain, you're you're seeing and you're hearing everything that's going on, and it's and it says also that the calves or the cows will all of a sudden give birth and are maybe not ready to give birth, but everything is happening. All things around are happening. The waves are mighty in the ocean, all kinds of things. If you, but I'm finally understanding. I mean, we keep reading it every Sabbath, every eve of Shabbat. We read the voice of the Lord. And, you know, you hear the words, but you're not visualizing it. So this is, this is what happened there in front of the mountain. The, yeah. mountain. the mountain itself was just breaking up before them. Yes. I mean, but, but we need something like this now because there's no fear of God in anybody anymore. Yes. To, to realize that, yes, he can speak, he can see exactly what is happening. Yes, Danielle, you have a comment or a question over there. I'm in theology right now in class. We're talking about um, God's, I don't know how to say the word, but it's like in component and component, something like that, and his like attributes, God's attributes and his, omniscience and all that and it just reminds me of like how you're talking about the fear of god and how god like knows so much about us and that kind of just made me like like god knows so much and he knows everything not even so much like he knows everything 
about us, about the world, and people are still trying to figure out all the mysteries of God and, and all that, but God just knows everything. It's just yeah. very... And, and and it's a it's a very interesting uh, thing that you you mentioned that that God knows everything about us as you know we can look at science fiction and go oh yeah we we see this thing of the the teleporter and it just looks so easy they go you know and they go from one place and they go to someplace else well a physicist has talked about that well how do you even make that possible if that were at all possible the first step you have to have is just what daniel said know everything about you in a split second but the thing is is that for that to happen is unbelievably unimaginable to know where everything is within you in a given split second because it changes even within fractions tiny little fractions of a second but to actually know you at any particular point in time, to truly know you. And that's just the position of where things are within your body. To actually then know what your thoughts are in there at any given point in time, that's even farther beyond that. And he knows that about every single person at any particular point in time. So when you see, uh, we'll be getting to this a little bit later as we move on here, that when it says the Lord sees, the Lord remembers, the Lord hears what's going on. That is a promise, but it's also a testimony of who the Lord actually is. So we see also that, well, then we're, we know what the destination and the path is to know the Holy One, to know the new life without the stain of guilt. Well, then what's the result? Okay, he's now provided the road, the way. So walk then toward that way. Walk as the Messiah walked. As master, so servant. Follow the way the master goes, the servant goes as well. But not he walked it so we wouldn't have to. In other words, you know, the law is abolished, which is something that we're taking a look at in our Galatians study. And this particular walk of in the way of righteousness is something that's memorialized in the annual festivals of Pesach, Matzot, or Unleavened Bread, and of Shavuot, or Pentecost. All those three together are way markers on this way from the house of bondage to freedom from going from where we were to being free, to meeting God, having the testimony of who God actually is. So, the topic that we're taking a look at here today is a little bit more on Exodus chapter 20 with the revelation, who is the Holy One, and the testimony of the Ten Words. Because what is another name for the tablets. Ten words, ten commandments, but they're called the tablets of the testimony. And when we get to the description later on in the book of Exodus, and it talks about 
the tent, the tabernacle of the testimony. So you see that there is this emphasis that heaven is putting on testimony, testimony, a witness. These are the tablets of the witness, the tent, the tabernacle of the witness. A witness of what and for what? That is one of the key revelations that we get of the 10 words. Now, um, I'll take a look here a bit, rewinding the tape just a little bit, back to Exodus chapters 3 and 4 as a preface to going forward into the Ten Commandments themselves. Because one of the things we see in Exodus 3 and 4 is that we see a prefiguring of some of what we encounter then later on in Exodus chapter 20. Because chapter 3 starts out of Exodus. Now Moshe was pasturing the flock of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moshe said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moshe, Moshe. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Avraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. Then Moshe hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Is there anything that's sounding familiar in this passage here from Exodus chapter 3? and what we just read earlier in Exodus chapters 18 through 20. One of the interesting things is we see the same guy again, Yitro. He's there. He's there with Yitro, his father-in-law. He's tending his flock. He goes with the flock. He's out tending the flock. And He's there around Horeb, the mountain of God. And he sees this strange sight, a bush that is burning, yet not burned up, consumed. What did we read earlier in Exodus 19 and 18? Talking about they, the people went, they came to the mountain, and encounters Yitro in, in chapter 19. Then he sees the Lord came down with this thick cloud on the mountain, and it was burning, but what? Not consumed. Huh, sounds very familiar, isn't it? And then what did they say about the mountain itself? Time to rush the stage? No, just the opposite. Put boundary markers around the mountain, around the base of the mountain. So the people don't just look up to see this because it's a spectacle. I mean, that's quite the spectacle to have a mountain with fire out on top of it, going on on top of it. But it's not burned up. That's quite a spectacle. Wonder what is causing that. So you just would just rather just rush up there to go see it. And 
It's something that we're encounter later on in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 10. But you see an interesting picture of the priesthood. They said even they don't let the priests go up to take a look. And you're thinking, well, that's interesting. Because you're seeing this picture of not having even the priests. Those are the people who are closest up to it closest to the presence of God, yet they just don't say, oh, I'm a priest, so I just go up the mountain without an invitation. But no, you, you get this picture, hey, there is a domain that is the creator of heaven and earth, and there is a domain that is outside of that. So understand where you're at. Because where did they come from? They came from Mitzrayim. They came from Egypt, which had a whole pantheon of deities, so-called deities. And the Lord had humiliated a good portion of them during the plagues. That was the stated goal. He said, I am going to humiliate them. I am going to show myself as superior to them show myself superior to paro to pharaoh to all of the deities all of the pantheon of egypt all of them are going to be shamed and that the people will know especially israel will know who is the lord who is the ultimate one over everything that part is made clear so thus you see with the encounter that Moshe has just with himself, he's leading sheep. But now he returns later on with a whole lot more sheep called people. And you see that picture again and again and again through scripture. We saw this back when we were having the study of John chapter 10. And right before you get to the part of where you have uh, Yeshua gets into one of his biggest encounters over that phrase, you know, I and the Father are one, and the claim of blasphemy, you see earlier on in chapter 10 is, he says, I am the good shepherd. And that is a theme that you see throughout Scripture from both the Torah and the prophets and the writings and the Psalms that talks about we, even the Psalm that what? Everybody knows. Psalm, what, 23, the Lord is what? My shepherd, I shall not want. I won't be in lack of anything, which is basically the story of the Exodus. The Lord is the shepherd who led Israel out of the house of bondage. Did they lack anything? No, they didn't lack anything. In fact, that's one of the specific messages you see in the book of De Devarim or Deuteronomy. The shoes didn't wear out. The clothes didn't wear out. They were miraculously sustained through this journey with food, with water, bread from heaven, living water out of a rock, sustained them throughout their entire time period. So that flock then is now brought to the mountain from, from the house of bondage. So you see some other interesting uh, parallels that you have between both this particular 
passage of chapters 3 and 4 and Exodus. Now, if you just were to compare some of the lessons that we have of, of the burning bush ex- experience in chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus and the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you see what is the first commandment. I am Adonai, your Elohim. I am the Lord, your God, who has taken you out of Mitzrayim, taken you out of the house of bondage. So you have that particular lesson. Now, what do you you have as the comparison for that? Back at the burning bush. I am Adonai, your father. I will free you from Mitzrayim. I am the Adonai, I am the Lord of your father. I'm the God of your fathers. I will free you from Mitzrayim. And then you see also where he says, I will be with you, because that was the thing that Moshe kept saying, don't send me, don't send me, send somebody else. But the Lord kept saying, I will be with you, Moshe, when you go to talk to Paro. But more than that, I have heard what's going on down there. I have not been completely an absentee to understand what the misery of the people in Mitzrayim have been. The Lord is telling, I hear, I have heard, I see, I have seen what is going on. And then one of the key lessons and signs is going to be that sign is going to be, I will bring you back here. So the Lord is showing, hey, I'm in a place, this mountain, bring them back here again. And also, also, you see that the empathy that surely have seen the affliction of the people, you see that also with the respect for the Lord, respect for the Lord's name. And that's one thing we talk often about is that name in biblical parlance is not just the spelling, not just the pronunciation. It is the reputation, what the name is known for. So, and we have, in English, we have the idiom, a good name. A good name. So, if you sully or if you have something has a bad name, what? It's a bad reputation, what it is known for. So we had, we had talked about that with the crossing of the Red Sea, that people then, the people of Canaan, when Israel finally goes up into the land, they got the message. And we saw in this particular passage that Yitro also heard about it. He heard about it, that what was going on with the freeing from of Israel from Mitzrayim, from the house of bondage, about the Red Sea and all that. But then he hears it directly from Moshe. He delivered us, not just some, somebody off somewhere, 
but he delivered us. He sustained us. He gave us food. He gave us water. He took us through the sea. He took us. He fought for us while we were standing still and watching and trusting what was going on. He was the one who did this. So that's a part of the respecting the name is saying the name of the Lord is important because that is a testimony of who the Lord is. When he says, I have, I am the one who took you out of the house of bondage. I empathize with you. So thus, that is a part of what the reputation of the Lord is, which is why when you see in the later chapters of Deuteronomy, when he talks about there has got to be the exiles as a correction for the, pe the people of Israel not wanting to listen to what the Lord says, with that correction, the nations could say, well, the Lord can't do anything. It was the promise that he would take them out and establish them in their land. Well, they're not in their land. So the nations could say, hey, the Lord can't do it, can't do what he promised to do. So thus, the Lord must step up and say, I will bring them back. I will reestablish. Not because of how great they are. We see that in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Not because of, for your sake, I am doing this, but because of what? My name, my reputation. Because it's not just an ego trip. It is a life raft for the entire world. The world has to depend upon that reputation. Because what? When there is any sort of rescue operation that happens, what must those who are rescued depend upon? That the rescuers can do what they're there for. Otherwise, what? You just hunker down. Like, all right, I'm good. Just tell them to go, go, go away. No, but if a rescue is there, you say, I am trusting you that you can do what you came here to do. And yes, a man of his word. So that when someone says they're going to return, you trust. And it may be a long time, it may be a short time, but if you have developed a relationship with the one who promised a return, thus you will have a return. Uh, yes, uh, first we got Anne over here and then uh, Yochanan down here. So uh, first Anne over, over there, please. Thank you. Yes, you want to be sure that the guy in charge is not telling everyone that is in the front line, stand down, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do anything to help your buddies out there. That's kind of what's going on, in, unfortunately, in our, in our own uh, military right now. So we want to know that the one in charge is going to come to our aid. Yeah. But that, that trust can be challenging if it takes a long time or if we go through all kinds of troubles in the, in the interim. Uh, yes. Wait on the Lord. Yes. 
Waiting on the Lord is indeed very, very difficult. May take 20 years, decades, your entire life or more. Yeah. And we may not even see it in our lifetime. So that takes even more trust that when we come to the end of our life, that we indeed keep trusting. Yes. Uh, Yochanan. Oh, I, I don't God, know please. if I've misheard it in the past or if um, I miss it in the scriptures. Did the children during the 400 in captivity know about the testimony of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That is a good, that is a good question. There are some de- degree that they did know, but also there is some indication that they had either forgotten, not been told from one generation to the next, but there was definitely some that kept on. Some had lost hope. Some had continued that message on from one generation to the next that they were hoping because one of the things is crying out the lord says i've heard they're crying out crying out to whom yes crying out to whom yes for help uh danielle did do you have a comment or a question yes uh, go ahead please okay there you go um I do like child care at um, a church, the church I go to school to. It reminds me of this little girl. Um, she's always like, she starts crying in the beginning. She's like, mommy not going to come back. My mommy not going to come back. And her little kid voice. And her mom's like, just tell her mommy's going to come back. And um, just keep telling her that and she'll stop crying. So it's kind of like our routine. I'll tell her, yeah, your mom's going to come back. Don't worry about it. And then she comes chill and like goes all over the place, and yeah. um, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like that's our job to help others tell them, don't worry, Jesus is gonna come back. He's gonna come back for us. He hasn't forgotten us yet. He's still gonna come back. And it reminds me of that little kid to daughter, little kid to mom relationship kind of thing, like. Yeah, and that's one of the important uh, lessons that we have of some of the parables of Yeshua when you know, he was talking about the parable of the, the virgins and those that you know, kept their readiness on, that they were ready for when the return, uh, when the bridegroom was coming, and those that were found sleeping and not ready. So that's one of those lessons is that are you actually preparing for a long wait? Even if the wait may be short or it may be long, are we actually preparing for that challenging of our trust? And the sign that we have there at the burning bush and Moshe was asking, well, when I go to them and tell them who I met, how are they going to believe me? And he gave them these signs, the sign of the, take your staff, throw it down, turns into a snake, pick it up by the tail, turns back into a staff again. You have the other sign of the leprosy, his hand sticking into your cloak, pull it out, ah, it's now leprous you're you know what that looks like it's it's you're about ready to either lose a limb or in the days before 
radical surgery, lose your whole body as it progresses throughout your entire body. Then you put it back in to your cloak, pull it back out again, it's restored. And the other sign there of the water and the blood, the water transformed to blood. So all of these signs are doing what? Showing that you are representing the one that is able to transform death to life, to death, back and forth. That is the one who you are representing. So we also see that in the Ten Commandments that the, the commandment on the Shabbat is one that is also a sign. Because we see it in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 when it says, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you, you um, do your work and such, but the seventh day is a Shabbat. It is a time to stop, to rest, to cease. Why? Because in six days, the Lord created heaven and earth. But on the seventh day, he rested. He stopped. And we've seen later on, you see it also revealed in chapter 31 of Exodus about this Shabbat, the Sabbath, is a sign that he is the creator. And he's also the one who does what? Makes you holy, sets you apart. So that Sabbath is a sign that he is the creator of heaven and earth. He's also the one who separates between that which is in the realm of God, holy, and that which is not in the realm of God. So that being a sign of who it is that you represent from one generation to the next. And lastly, you see that Moshe, when he's trying to get out of or say that he is truly unworthy. So different ways you can read that. You're saying, I'm, I don't want to go, or I am unworthy to go and be your spokesman on this. Who am I to be your spokesman on this? And the Lord says back to him, says, well, who has made man's mouth? So the Lord has made your mouth, and the Lord says, go, I will speak through you. You are then worthy. And you see also the uh, prophet uh, Isaiah also said, I am unworthy. And then what is the representation, the vision that he gets that heaven is saying? You see a coal being brought from heaven and touched his mouth. Say, look, heaven has cleansed you with fire. So you don't think you're worthy. Heaven has made you worthy. Not because of how fantastic you are, but because that heaven has you can say, cauterized what the problem was and burned away any sort of problems that were existing. So move on forward into it. You have really what you need to do what you have to do, Moshe. So in a similar way, we see in the Ten Commandments about honoring your, your parents who've given you really all that you have in life. You see 
a lot of people over time have wrestled with this. And you see it talked a lot about in today's world. Well, I hate my parents. My parents were awful people. They did terrible things to me. I've been set up, dealt a bad hand. Well, the thing is, is all of us have really, to one degree or another, been through some issue or another. Yes, people have had worse situations where they start out with. I mean, the, the question is, well, then what are you going to do? You can stop or you can move forward. Trust that the Lord is going to carry you forward through whatever it is that you can have this in your back pocket that you have endured through it. For when you see martyrs, when they have endured all kinds of things because of who they trusted in, that becomes a part of their testimony, their witness of the greatness of God, that no matter what that they were dealt with to begin with, they move forward from it. We can sit back and say, well, we were born here in the United States. How wonderful we are. Or someone was born in North Korea. How horrible that is. How terrible that is. Well, we have brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah who were born, are living in North Korea right now. So we can just lament about the fact I'm born under a horrific regime that won't let me openly worship. Or do what? Say, okay, this is where I am. I will move forward with what? God's help. With the new heart, the new spirit within us to work through any situation that we are in. And there's a lot of talk today about being resilient. Well, that's resilient to what? Whenever you're hit with all kinds of blows, one after the other after the other, knocked down, what do you do because of it? A resilient person gets back up. No matter how many times you get knocked down, it's incredibly difficult, and that's a whole part of the body of believers is that when we see others around us who just continually get knocked down, what do we do? Go, ha-ha, that, that's your fault? No. You are there to help, to help move them forward, to help lead them, to help guide them, to pick them up, to get them going on their way again. Because why? That's what the Lord did to us. We may not have had that kind of a situation happen to us, but the Lord has helped us. And if we think we're so fantastic more than that other so-called schlub, no. Compared to the kingdom of God, we're all schlubs. All of us who think we're something, we're nothing really, in the scheme of the career of heaven and earth. So thus, we all are pretty much in the same boat. Their circumstances might be different, but in the scheme of heaven, oh yeah. 
a lot of the, the same situation. So when we look at the Big Ten, we go back over to Exodus chapter 20, and we see that, you know, one, you know, various people have paired together the Ten Commandments into different ways. Um, one common way that people have looked and compared it over time period is that there is a parallel between the commandments. That's, yeah, you've got Ten Commandments, but one way to look at it is, it, is that they, they are a pairs. So you've got five pairs of statements that are in there. One way to look at it is that you've got one of those pairs of statements is a vertical relationship between you and someone, quote, above you, and a, a horizontal relationship between you and someone next to you or those that you are around. You could say peers of one degree or another. So when you see like the first commandment, you know, I am Adonai, have no other gods, if that were paired with you shall not murder, one of the principles you could get out of that is to remember Adonai. And you're like, well, how does that relate to murder? One of the things that you see in the early days of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, chapter 9 with the flood, what do you see with right after the flood? There is the instruction that if someone is out shedding someone else's blood, you've got to deal with that. Because why? The blood cries out, but you're talking about those who have the image of God. And that goes back to chapter 1 of Genesis. In the image of God that he created them, male and female, he created them. So that is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27. So people, all of us have been created with that image of God. So thus, in the killing of life, you are snuffing out the image of God. That is why that is so serious. Some people may take it to be no big deal. They will t snuff out life, whether when it's just getting started, when you're, quote, old, in your older days, there's even that effort going on right now. When you're not worth the effort, that's going on in Canada right now, where they're convincing people to greater degrees that if your life is not worth living, you should just end your own life or have someone else do it for you. So that sort of respect for people as all being in the image of God is why murder is a big deal. Because you are snuffing out that image of God in other people around us. Respect that image of God in somebody else. And like in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Well, when you're talking about you have the Lord, have no other gods before me, then you have an idol. What is that idol? That's one of those other gods. So you're thus then, first commandment, I am the Lord, have no other gods before me. Second commandment, don't have any idols, meaning what? Don't have a, 
a, what they call a side fling, so to speak, to put it on human terms. Don't have a, another relationship with some other so-called deity. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about that, about the other so-called gods. And people in the pagan world, it was just thought, hey, you can kind of have a kind of a collection of deities. The various spiritual forces that we help you. You've got one over here, one for this, one for that, one for this, one for that. It can all be just a giant collection. And you appeal to one for one area of life and another to another area of life. And thus you can have one big happy, you know, uh, spiritual family. But the Lord is saying, no, there is only one creator of heaven and earth. I am the one who created. I am the one who freed no other side flings devoted only to that. So thus, when you see the seventh commandment about not committing adultery, thus you're saying, hey, you have important relationships in life with the creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer, the freer from slavery, and with your spouse. Do not Get into anything that is going to destroy the relationship with your spouse. Do not do anything that's going to destroy your relationship with God. And the third commandment about taking his name in vain, we talked about that before. Name, reputation. What it, the name, the reputation, what that stands for, what the testimony of that reputation is. So thus, you see in the commandment, the eighth commandment about do not steal, that same word is used elsewhere in the Torah for do not kidnap. So that's, you could also see it as kidnapping somebody else's stuff. In other words, that's not yours. So thus, you have a protection of property, and that is not only just of reputation for the Lord, but protection of property. Because what, when we say, um, today people, you'll hear people say IP, you know, intellectual property, the things that you think about, the things that have come out of your head, that that is property. That belongs to you. In recent decades, people have, kind of play fast and loose with the idea, well, you know, I find a song, I'll just, I'll just copy it. If I find this, I'll just copy it. I'll just copy this, copy that. Well, what then have you started to do? You started to degrade the um, link that you have with the person who actually produced what it was. And the, the name of God what has God produced? Freedom, your life, the heavens and the earth. You protect that, where it all comes from. It's not a derivative of such. One of the things that you know, it was just in the past um, couple of weeks, there is a big crackdown right now in places against counterfeit goods. South Korea has just done a major crackdown of counterfeit goods. So if you are from certain suppliers, if you see, oh, a Chanel or you know, Louis Vuitton or something like that, 
it's not Chanel. It's not Louis Vuitton, no matter even if it looks very close to it. And it's even worse than just it's not that. They've tested them and found like earrings, high levels of lead and cadmium. They're like worse than just you're not getting the original. They're actually harmful to you in a sense. So thus, when you're talking about property rights, that is why you'll see later on when we get into the Torah and it says, do not move a neighbor's boundary stone. I mean, there's their property line. They've got a, they, in ancient times, they would have pillars, monuments, something that would, that would mark where the people's territories were. Well, if you went and just say, ah, I, I need some more space, so you just move it. Well, you've done what? You've stolen their property. You've just said, taken it upon yourself, I want more space, and you just move it over. You want this, and I just take it. Moving on to the fourth commandment, we talked about that before, about the Shabbat and the sign of what that is and the signs that Moshe was given there at the, at the burning bush to reveal to Pharaoh to show who was actually the creator of heaven and earth. Well, this being a sign, remember the Shabbat, because that's a testimony as it's described here in the Ten Commandments. I am the one who created heavens and the earth, and I did them in six days. Thus, you've got six days of work and one day of rest. You see in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when you've got the repeating of the Ten Commandments for the next generation, Remember that next generation, they may have been born in slavery or they may have been too young to remember it, the service in Egypt. So one of the things that they're reminded of in Deuteronomy chapter 5 with the Shabbat is to remember that you were what? Slaves in Egypt. So remember who your creator is. Remember who your redeemer is. And then also we saw in Exodus chapter 31, remember who the one who makes you holy. Remember who the one who heals you. So when you see a corollary to that in the ninth commandment about uh, do not bear false witness, it really, strictly speaking, is talking about testifying falsely. So do not answer against your neighbor um falsely is what the you know if you were to do a literal translation of it was you know do not answer against your neighbor falsely so thus when you're saying when you you take that into a legal arena if there is something going on with your somebody else and you give a false testimony about that what can happen to that person? Then go to jail and get a large judgment against them. All kinds of things can happen that shouldn't happen if you have a true witness saying, hey, this is what really happened. But if you have a false witness that testifies to it, all kinds of bad things can happen to your neighbor. 
So if you think about that in the corollary to bring it back across of what the Shabbat is, is that that is a testifying to the world who the creator is, who the redeemer is on this, about giving a true testimony to it, which is why, you know, when we read that, that preamble to the, um, to the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 5, and it says there in verse 17, you know, do not think that I came to what? To abolish the law and the prophets. Well, if you're, if you're thinking, hey, this, the Mashiach is a key witness, or as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, the direct representation of Adonai here on earth a witness, key witness here of who Adonai is, is in his role as creator. That is a key testimony of that. So thus, when Yeshua is saying, I'm not going to do anything like that, that's one thing that would certainly not change because that is a key testimony of who the creator is. Uh, yes, Alex. Now, we kind of oversimplify things sometimes. So it's when you think, read the Ten Commandments about the Shabbat. Hey, God's watching you. But then Yeshua reminds us, hey, the, sh the sh Sabbath was made for us. Need something to eat? Go over and get yourself something to eat. Yes. Remember why it, you're setting it aside. Because, you know, if you forget that, the Shabbat just like the temple can become a idol. Just like you see that in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, I hate your feasts. I hate your feasts. But the thing is, though, you know, people will say, well, oh, he was talking to somebody else. He's... If he was talking to the kingdom of Israel, you could have that argument because they indeed came up with their own separate set of God's appointed times. Because when you had the division of the northern kingdom of Israel from the southern kingdom of Judah, they came up with their own festivals. They were a month later. Why? So they didn't go, they didn't have the people in the north making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the south to go to the festivals. So they came up with their own whole slate of holy days that were different from what God had set aside. So thus, when you're talking, and this prophet, Yeshiahu, Isaiah, was testifying to the southern kingdom, saying, hey, you priests in Jerusalem, what? I hate your feasts, even though you are the ones who are carrying out supposedly my instructions, what have you done with them? And as you read on through the book of Isaiah, you see exactly what he's done with them. But you see, as it progresses on, you see he reveals through his prophet Isaiah the way that they were supposed to be carried out, like you see in Isaiah 58. This is the fast that I am calling for. 
You know, you think you know what Yom Kippur is. Well, let me show you what Yom Kippur really is all about. Let me show you what Shabbat is all about. Let me show you what the new moon is all about. You think you know what it is? Well, you were testifying about some other deity because you have now taken the people off away from me. Uh, Yes, uh, Yochanan, go ahead, please. Yeah, I think uh, a beautiful passage in Isaiah 42:21 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. This is what Yeshua did. Yeah, to magnify it. And you, you see the apostle, the apostle Paul says exactly the same thing in his letter to the Romans. It's like, you know, we uphold the law, but... What happens if you do not have the law plus the Spirit of God with it? What happens? It is only condemning you because it lines up saying, here's the standard of God, but you're like those people at the mountain we read about earlier in the Torah reading of Yitro. Moshe, you talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. You've not had the relationship between them. You know what the Lord says. You heard it. Oh, boy, did you hear it. Yeah, like we were saying earlier, you felt it down to your bones. But do you actually have a relationship with the one who said it? No. So thus, it was what we read about in Isaiah chapter 6. Ever hearing and ever listening. Ever seen, but what? Never perceiving. So these messages that the Lord is bringing through, his words, they're just words. They're not understanding. They're knowledge, but they're not really any sort of understanding. Because I'm sure you know, and I met them myself, people that know the Bible extremely well and don't believe a word of it. They got PhDs even just people that have just read the Bible lots of times, they can quote it up one side and down the other, don't believe a word of it. So, the thing is, is it just knowledge? Maybe just read it a few more times. Well, you'll be seen, ever perceiving, but never understanding. Because what? You're just, you get the encounter, but not the relationship. You have the experience the light show, the big booms, but no what? Relationship that comes as a result of it. You're not actually changed. You've been rattled, but not changed. So that's when you get down to a very difficult pair of commandments with the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And with the last commandments related to you shall not covet and that coveting is something that is happening within you that is also taken to action so your thoughts have gone to desires have gone to action well do you actually then recognize the blessings or the things that you've been given? 
You could say, I have been dealt a bad hand. Why don't I have that Lamborghini? If I was dealt a better hand, I would have that Lamborghini. Or I would at least, you know, have a nice house. Or I would at least have a car. Or I at least have a roof above my head. But since I wasn't dealt that hand, so thus, what I see over there, that person should not have it. Because I don't have it. So whether it's a relationship, whether it's stuff, if I don't have that, that other person shouldn't have it. Because that's what the heart of what coveting is, is not just wanting it, but wanting it to the expense of somebody else. To say, well, what is it that I actually have? Even if what we have may be nothing, are we content with what we have? Or are we just saying, what other people have, I need to have? Or in its more modern sense, well, what other people have, they need to be forced to give it to me. So that it is the heart of coveting, and it has been a continual issue that's worn all kinds of different masks and clothes throughout Earth's history, that's had all kinds of different realms that it's circulated in. But it's the same heart issue, as we can see shades of that back in the garden. You know, when you look at it and you think, oh, well, that fruits of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, it's good for wisdom, etc. Hmm, I don't have that. I want that. Or, as you could say that some people try to caricature it as, well, why is God keeping this knowledge of good and bad from me. I want it. I want to have it to make person wise. So when we see in the Ten Commandments, they're a testimony of who the Lord is. But they're also a roadmap for the two greatest commandments that you see expressed in the Gospels, and you, we, we say one of those at the beginning of our services from the Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the Shema. You know, you'll love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your desires, with all your resources, with your very life. And from Leviticus 19.18, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And as you see, it's expressed in the golden rule in the Gospels, you know, do to others what you would want them to do to you. Then you see the corollary that showed up some centuries later, what you don't want someone to do to you, don't do that to somebody else. But the idea is that look out for your horizontal relationships, your relationships with those people around you, but also respect the vertical relationships. You know, we see an increasingly toxic sense in 
our Western culture against vertical relationships and against horizontal relationships. You know, we're, our relationships with people around us is eroding. Our relationships with the vertical relationships with our parents don't respect parents, don't respect God, don't respect authorities, etc. Now you could say, well, maybe they don't deserve respect. The sense is, is that, well, what's within our power to do, what do we do with it? There might be those that don't deserve that because they've behaved reprehensibly. But what is our side of that equation? They've done their reprehensible side of it. But what have we done on our side? Are we just responding evil for evil? So there are the cases where we have to separate ourselves. If there is an authority that is encroaching upon us, we may have to flee, so to speak. That's one of the instructions for believers, whether it's a relationship, whether it's an authority, some government or whatever, you may have to flee out of it. You may have to detach from the situation, but what is then your response back to it? That's one of the things that we learn from the testimony of, of heaven through the Ten Commandments. Uh, yes, uh, Anne, you have a comment or a question over there? You know, you mentioned before, like, if your parents were less, less, less than what God would want them to be and you were abused or what, uh, the whole thing is to respect the respect the position that that person is in i mean he's your father he doesn't deserve to be respected however he's still in that position as my father so respect the position like respect the president's i mean position yeah, just he, even because if he it's, is he is in that office and even if it's for a modeling of hate this is what this is what a person with this role should be doing you know like we were talking about earlier with people who've had um, disagreements with God and a bad relationship with God well are we just mirroring the bad situations that we've had with either a pastor or a, a father that have behaved reprehensibly so we've projected that now upon God, or do we take God's testimony of, "Hey, this is what this is what heaven really wants for people. You know, freedom, relationship, to have you at liberty, to give you direction in life, to, in the end scheme of things, to restore, recreate it, set it back to the way it was originally created. That is what the testimony of heaven it is. There have been all sorts of people that have tried to acting in the name of heaven that have done horrible things, whether they be parents, whether they be ministers, whether they be various one leader or another, done terrible things to destroy that witness to the point where you know, we see it in the word where you see the sons of Eli who are priests 
working at the, at the tabernacle. Their behavior was so lecherous that people would not what? Wouldn't even come to the house of God, to their only source of help because of what? The behavior of the servants of God in the process. So what were those people doing? Blaspheming the name. They were taking the name above all names and just dragging it down to, ah, I don't even want to know that name anymore. So for those people that would trust, they would say, okay, well, see, we got to keep our distance from those reprehensible folk that are dressed like priests, not acting like it, but still say, look, we will still trust that the God of heaven and earth is still on the throne even if some of his ministers are just acting reprehensibly in the process. We see kind of a, a symbol of that also in Paul's testimony when he was dragged before the Sanhedrin, and he's like, hey, this guy is sitting in the seat, but he's not acting like one who's the leader of Israel. But he still deserves respect because of the seat that he's sitting in as high priest but certainly not acting the part. So thus we have, that's why the importance of the tablets of the testimony are there because they testify of who God really is, even if the servants of God in various levels do not <laughs> communicate that. So that's where we'll end things here today. Any last uh, thoughts? Yes, Larry. Go ahead, please. Uh, well, Messiah said something very similar to that when he said, when they sit on Moses' seat, mm. do as they say, but not but what they do. What do. They do. Indeed. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.